you will please turn with your in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 11. 1 Samuel chapter 11 is where we'll be today. I think this is a great passage for the new year as we are dealing with the new king Saul and kind of his first act as king. So before we go to the text, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with it. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we just read and heard from how you talked with those people on the road to Emmaus and how you opened the scriptures to them and you showed them yourself from Moses to the prophets. We know that you are within every page and we want to hear that this morning. So Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts up to hear that, that we would see your gospel truth on these pages as we read them, that you would instruct our hearts to turn towards you, to live as we should, to do as we ought. And so, Lord, we pray that you would, again, open our hearts and minds, open our eyes, that we might see the truth that lay before us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I read this passage this week, it reminded me of some of my studies and just different things that I've watched and read about World War II and some of the basic things concerning the war that everybody knows, so I'm not going to get too too crazy here. But the World War II was interesting in that it was lots of different types of people, lots of different nations involved. It was really a world war in many ways. And one of the first things that I thought of as I read this text was the difference between the French and the Japanese armies when it came to surrendering. The French kind of get this bad reputation for surrendering quickly. I'm not, we're not, I'm not bad-mouthing the French necessarily. Um, but in World War II, they were so badly outmaneuvered by the Germans that they were left with little choice but to surrender, even though they had this incredible defense structure, the Maginot Line, and they could have held out for a long time, Germany was just better and just smashed through it. Even though France had this incredibly equipped army, they gave in quickly to the Germans, just like they did in World War I, and uh, we know history on that. Well, the Japanese, on the other hand, were almost the exact opposites. Many of them were very poorly equipped, but they believed so greatly in their cause, that they would literally fight to the last man. Very few Japanese prisoners were taken during the war. Rather, they would hide out in these tunnels. The U.S. would bombard these small islands for days. They would go onto the island, and they would find that there were still 10,000 Japanese soldiers alive and ready to fight because they were hiding in tunnels. They would charge out against all odds, And this made them particularly dangerous. They had nothing to lose when they fought. And so battles like Iwo Jima and Okinawa were very deadly for both sides because they didn't give up. They didn't care. If they had a knife in their hand, they would charge full on into an army. They didn't care. And so in our text today, we're going to see these men of Jabesh Gilead. And the folks there in Jabesh Gilead were more like the French than the Japanese. When they were met with an enemy, they quickly wanted to come to terms with that enemy. 
Remember what had happened in Israel in our last uh, text. We had just established a king of Israel who was supposed to deliver them. And I guess Jabesh Gilead forgot that part. And they really, they must have uh, not really trusted the Lord when the Lord said that he, that Saul would crush their enemies and that they probably didn't trust Saul as well in this. Instead, they waved the white flag and they were ready to surrender. And I think this is a good picture of us sometimes as well. When we come up against difficulties of our faith, difficulties in the world, many times we throw in the towel early rather than stick it out. And we choose to live a life of comfort rather than one of upheaval because, well, comfort is good. We like it. And so I think this passage reminds us of the importance of the gospel's power to save and our need to trust the Lord's power for salvation. It's a good passage for us at the beginning of this year. And so in this passage, we'll consider three main ideas. The terrified people at Jabesh Gilead, the heroic Saul who came to save them, and then the kingdom renewed. And so with that, let's stand together as we read the text. We'll be reading 1 Samuel chapter 11 in its entirety. So let's stand together as we read this text. <clears throat> then Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead with all the men of Jabesh, and, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash, the Ammonite, said to them, On this condition, I will make a treaty with you that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter to, in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people? Why are they weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh, and the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. And he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces, and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were three hundred thousand, and the men of Judah thirty thousand. <clears throat> and they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have deliverance. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, that you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch, and struck down the Ammonites until, until the heat of the day, and those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men, that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. 
Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and they came and made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So just a quick review of what we've talked about so far uh, and what's been going on. The last time we were in this book together, we looked at Saul's kind of election as king, uh, not by popular vote of the people, not like we normally think of an election, but ultimately from the casting of a single vote from the Lord. And Saul was made king, and you remember that Saul was hiding in the baggage, maybe trying to be humble, maybe trying to run. We don't know, but that's what he was doing. And so whatever the case, the people saw their new king and were reminded that their asking for a king was a direct rejection of the Lord's leadership in their life, and the Lord being the king of all kings, like we read this morning from Psalm 47. And so how should we view this passage, and particularly in view that today is New Year's Day? Well, for us, I think on New Year's Day... This is a call for us to go back to our first love, Jesus Christ, because, of course, he'll be presented here. That doesn't mean that we've all wandered away or anything like that. That just means that we should always be renewing that relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ, to remember our first love. And it's also a call to repentance, because we will readily forsake him for others. And we need to remember that as well. And I think more important, and for us to understand, and particularly as we read through the rest of this Old Testament text, just a reminder to you, something that I continue to keep in front of you, that we are not Saul in this particular story. We aren't the ones that have been called into bravery and to battle. He cut the oxen up and looked really cool in front of all of his soldiers. That's not us. We're the ones that would willingly lose our right eye because we've lost all hope and who surrendered as soon as the enemy showed up. We need a Savior. And so as we look here, make sure that we do not orient ourselves in the Savior's role. We like to do that because we like to be the hero. But we need to be saved. We need to be saved, and without a Savior, we are helpless. We are useless We're going to be owned by the Nahash, the Ammonites of the world. We need Jesus. And so that's who we're going to talk about this morning. And so first, we're going to look at the terrified people of Jabesh Gilead. And of course, they quickly surrender this man named Nahash, which literally means snake in the Hebrew. He is an Ammonite. He rides in. He lays siege to Jabesh Gilead. And how do the men respond? The first words out of their mouth are, hey, can we make a treaty? They lay down their arms and they they ask for a truce. And remember, we've talked about these Old Testament treaties in here before. We talked about the uh, the covenants and how they were made and kind of the, the structure of the covenants. These types of treaties are very formulaic between the suzerain, which is the leader, which would be Nahash the Ammonite here, and his vassal states, which would be Jebesh Gilead, his new slaves, if they were to be that. There's a conqueror, there's the uh, the people who are being conquered, 
And then there's usually the cutting up of animals. When it says make a treaty, the, the, the Hebrew there is literally cut a treaty because there's the cutting up of animals. What does that symbolize? Well, it symbolizes that this is we're going to make this covenant so that if either one of us break the terms of the covenant, we would be like the animals that are being slain here. All right, so there was a way to secure the terms of that covenant. But in this case, what are the terms going to be? Rather than cutting animals, what is Nahash the Ammonite wanting? He's wanting the blood of the people. He's wanting to take their right eye, which for most people is their dominant eye. Most left-handed people would have been lucky that day. Why? In order to disgrace them, in order to disgrace all of Israel. Can you imagine coming upon this area, this town, this group of people, and everyone in town missing their right eye? That would have been incredible to see. They're literally defacing them, making them disabled and weak, unable to provide for themselves like they used to, unable to defend themselves in battle, making them completely dependent upon Nahash, the Ammonite, and to ensure they would never attack again. Pretty smart if you're Nahash. <clears throat> and when the men were ready to go through this, but they just had to check one thing. They had to say, hey, let us have seven days and we will give us seven days respite that we may send messengers throughout Israel. And then if there's no one to save us, we'll give ourselves to you. And apparently uh, Nahash the Ammonite was not very smart because he allowed them to do this. So they sent messengers throughout all of Israel to see if there was a savior. They needed a savior, but are they going to trust when that Savior comes in. They wanted someone to check if they were going to save them. But after seven days, what were they ready to do? Have their eyes gouged out. I think it's pretty interesting, considering they just appointed a king. All the people of Israel came together to do this, even these men and women at Jabesh Gilead. And they were just told what, what was the king going to do for them. Deliver them from all of their enemies. Yet, they're sending out messengers and they're kind of hoping for the best here. I think we're a lot the same in that regard. I think particularly as we face 2017, there are many new things ahead for us. 2016 was a very interesting year. If you consider popular culture and the government and all these different things, maybe for us it was just another year. But the world saw some pretty interesting things happen. And so, as a nation, let's think of some of the new things that we face. Well, we face new leadership, which normally isn't a thing, but the new leader this time, a lot of people think is kind of crazy. And so, we're facing that together as a country. What does this new leadership bring? As a church, what do we face? We face another year. We're almost two years in now. We face this process that we're working through. Working through our purpose, who are we as a church plant here in Murray, Kentucky? What is our purpose together? We face that trial as we walk through that. It's a good thing, but it's still a hard thing to sometimes in introspect and consider. As individuals, what do we face? We 
face the relentless pursuers called age and decay. We watch our children get older. We watch them face new responsibilities. We watch our parents age. It's a different kind of world. Every year, we all get a year older. We all are facing that death rate of one to one. And so how do we react? I think most of the time, if we're honest, we're afraid of what the new world brings and new things that are ahead of us. And many times, I think we would gladly gouge out our right eye if we could guarantee that our problems would be over and that we could live out the rest of our lives in comfort and peace. Wouldn't that be nice? However, we can't do that. Why? Because our enemies, our enemies are much greater than Nahash, the Ammonite, or Donald Trump, or Russia, or whoever you want to put there in that place. Our enemies are much greater than all of those. Our enemies are sin and death. And they ensure that there can be no peace and no comfort this side of heaven without Jesus Christ. And so without someone to save us from them, they would wreck everything that we know. Our lives on this earth would end only to see us suffer again for all eternity because we're unable to give an answer to a holy God who demands sinless perfection. So we need a savior, a hero to save us. That brings us to this next part, the heroic Saul. And I love this picture of Saul. It says, now behold, behold, Saul was coming in from the field behind the oxen. So he's out there farming. He's out there doing something. And then he said, what's wrong with all the people? Why are they weeping? You kind of get these like this big man. And he's like, why are they whining? The people, they're always whining. And they may tell him. And then all of a sudden his anger is just kindled. It says his anger, the spirit rushes upon him, his anger is kindled. And that's not a bad thing, right? To be upset about this injustice that's going on among his people. He's almost like He-Man. You might watch the old cartoons He-Man, you know, where he goes from this cowardly Adam who, who wears this, like, pink vest. And then he, like, holds his sword up in the air and says some words. And all of a sudden he's this big, muscly He-Man. Um... And he's able to like go out and break everything and win the day. Maybe that's like Saul. I don't probably not. But you get the idea. All right. Saul's anger is kindled in him. He has this fire that's in him. He wants deliverance for his people. And you can kind of see him going out and doing that. And then what does he do? It'd be really nice if it ended there, but it doesn't. He cuts up his oxen and sends them all around the country and says, if you don't join the army, this is going to happen to your oxen as well. Wow. what? Who is Saul acting like here? He's acting just like the king that God said he would. Just like God said he would do. He would take everything away from you. He would take your people. He would take your sons. He would take your livestock. And he would put them in his armies to fight his battles. It would be great if Saul's anger just spurred him on to do great deeds of redemption without all of this, without strong-arming his own people. But that's exactly what he did. And surprise, surprise, an army of 300,000 joined his side, 
because what does it say about them? That they were the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. And so Saul's anger is a bit misdirected, obviously. He gives us a great anger of what anger shouldn't, or great example of what anger shouldn't look like. Uh, it was right for him to be angry about the people of the Lord being threatened as their king, as their appointed temporary savior, as it were. However, he took it a little bit too far. But God told the people that he would do this. Did God need so many soldiers? I mean, we go back to the judges and we read about Gideon, right? And He had 300 men. How did he pick those 300 men? By the way that they drank water. And he took those 300 men and he killed the Midianites, which in Judges 6, it tells us that the Midianites were so many, they were impossible to count. And 300 men took them out because the Lord doesn't need 300,000. Or that time in Judges when he took one man and uh, the jawbone of a donkey and killed a thousand Philistines. The Lord doesn't need fighting force to do his battles. But apparently Saul didn't know his history, and so he mustered 300,000 to do that, to smash his enemies, even though he didn't need it. But it is interesting, if you think about it, the Lord doesn't need anyone to smash his enemies, but we remember eventually he does that with a baby born to a teenage girl and a carpenter. God doesn't need us to save us. And he definitely doesn't need our anger to bring people to himself. So I think that's a good word for us here concerning Saul. But Saul here is a kind of savior. This is his one good moment. This is the one thing that Saul does that is good. That if we look back and if Saul's story kind of ended here, we might praise him as kind of a good guy. But it doesn't. Just a few chapters later, he's going to start doing stupid things, and he doesn't really stop doing them until he dies. Um, and that's who Saul is. But this is his moment. He's a kind of savior for the people. He hears the cry of the people. When he's out on the farm, he goes out after their enemy, and he routs them. He destroys them. And there is much rejoicing. But again, this is about it for Saul. This is one moment in the sun. And he's going to do lots of other things, but we're going to see a much different version of Saul. And again, this doesn't surprise the Lord, or it doesn't surprise Samuel. It really doesn't surprise us. It shouldn't have surprised the people there, but it probably did, that Saul kind of turned out to be a dud. Because we never want our replacement saviors to fail us, fail us, but they can only fail us. Jesus is the only one who can never fail us. And that brings us to this next point and the last point, that the kingdom is renewed. So after they go out and they rout the enemy so much so that no two of them are left together, I love that, the people said to Samuel, who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in that we may put them to death. Remember those worthless men from chapter 10? 
there at the end of, of chapter 10, I think verse 27, but some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. Saul held his peace. Maybe the men from Jabesh Gilead were these worthless men who said that in chapter 10. Maybe they're the ones calling for the heads of others who said that. It doesn't really matter. Saul says, no one's going to die here on this day. Again, kind of a a merciful effort from Saul because we don't see much mercy from him in the future. I think it's interesting, though, that we love to point our fingers and find the one who didn't believe, even when we didn't either. But Saul here has mercy. It's important for him to do that. And he gives credit to the Lord. What does he say about the salvation? This is the salvation that the Lord has worked. No one will die. I'm not your Savior. The Lord is. He is the one who saved you. And so Samuel has the people go to Gilgal, which is kind of a worship center for the Lord, and they renew there the kingdom of God. And that isn't to say that Saul needed to be recognized again as king or anything like that, but he did show himself worthy for the office, even though he didn't have to do that. But the people are now kind of gathering around him as king. They're making sacrifices. They are rejoicing together. And so this is kind of what some commentators called a religious coronation for him. They're finally seeing this salvation that the Lord has promised, and it's coming through this king that they appointed, Saul. It's a very good day for Israel. And I think for us... It's a good showing for us that we are called to recognize the king as well. It gives us an, a great pattern, I think, for our own kingdom renewal. We who quickly surrender when it comes to any kind of trouble. And I think it, it's a good call for us to be more passionate, more committed to the cause that we have. That we'd be driven by the goal of preaching the gospel, to see Jesus, to preach Jesus and him crucified, ministering to the lost in our community. And I think this time of year, people love to make resolutions. We all like to kind of hear these resolutions, ways that we're going to change for the better in the coming year. There's no real spiritual merit to them or anything. It's just kind of a thing that people do, again, because we feel this kind of reset with the new year. It's a good thing. It really is. People make these grandiose kind of claims and promises. It's hard to keep them during the year because sometimes we just get a little too overzealous with them. Um, but, it's again, it's a good thing, I think. And so as I looked at some different resolutions, I found one from American scholar and theologian, Puritan Jonathan Edwards um, from the 18th century, like pre-Revolutionary War times. And this was one of his resolutions, and I'll read it for you. He says, Resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be the most to God's glory and my own good, profit, and pleasure 
in the whole of my duration without any consideration of the time, whether now or never, so many myriads of ages hence. Resolve to do whatever I think to be my duty and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general. Resolve to do this, whatever difficulties I meet with, how many and how great soever. So resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be to God's glory and my own good, profit and pleasure, whatever difficulties I meet with. I love that. We would do well to heed his words here as we meet this new year. That we will have difficulties. There will be these Nahash, the Ammonites, that will be coming around. And we will be tempted to surrender, just like these men of Jabesh Gilead. But we have a Savior who has ordered our steps, who has kept all things together. And he does all things for our good and for his glory. And I think it's important then for us to remember those tendencies to want to give up. But we have a Savior, so therefore we should take heart. Face this year with great courage and determination. The Lord is going to do things that we would not believe even if we were told. He is going to work through his people. He is going to do amazing things all over the world. Will he help us here in Murray at Redeemer Community Church? Will he deliver this city and see the gospel go forward and his kingdom renewed here? Let us pray that. Let us pray that he would do those things and that he would use us to do them. Let our prayers be so great that we would be shocked that we would be in awe of his glory and his majesty to see them answered. So, brothers and sisters, let us pray to that end, that we would be used as instruments in his hands to see the kingdom of God go forward in Murray, Kentucky, to be renewed in us and through us here. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, we pray this. We see here in this passage just a picture of what you do for your people, your people who so willingly surrender, who give up quickly, who don't see your eternal purpose in things, but yet you come and you save us anyway. We are thankful for that. Change our hearts, Lord, that we might be more faithful, that we might be more forgiving to one another, to to other Christians, not just here, but to, as we continue this ministry together, that we would minister to the lost as one, that we would come together as your people, doing the work that you have called us to do. We thank you for the task that you have called us to do. Give us strength and mercy to do it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.